Welcome everybody, page 13 in your notebook. Anybody need a notebook? Anybody have? And if uh, any of you did not register for this class and you just wandered in here, then uh, if you would do that before you leave, you can do that next door, the room just behind me here. It's not a huge deal, but helps us to know what uh, where everybody is. But uh, page 13 tonight in our introduction to the Reformation class. And we have seen that the church has always faced opposition in two forms. One form of opposition is persecution, the other one heresy or false teaching. And both of those started from the very beginning in the first century. Continued, as we've seen in the notes, uh, sometimes locally and sporadically, sometimes in a systematic way uh, by government officials. But that went on for the first few centuries of the church. But then a monumental event in the history of the church occurred, and that that is the conversion of Constantine in the year 312, 312. The following year, 313, he issued something called the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity not the favored religion of the empire, not at least right away, that didn't come till the end of that century, but it made it a uh, legal religion, which it had not been prior. So now Christians enjoyed uh, relative safety, persecution was no longer an issue, but heresy, false teaching, continued to be uh, an issue. So I say at the top of page 13, The first five centuries of the church era were consumed with the need to clarify doctrine against the claims of heretics. It was during this period, therefore, that the inspired writings were recognized, the nature of Christ and the Trinity, as well as the nature of sin and grace, were explained. All right, so that second sentence is a bit of a mouthful, but because of false teaching, then during this uh, opening several hundred years of the church, then a number of things were done to combat the false teaching. The inspired writings were recognized, the nature of Christ and of the Trinity, and the nature of sin and grace were explained. And we'll talk about those in tonight's lesson. But that recognition of the inspired writings, uh, notice that word recognized, the inspired writings, that is, the books of the Bible were recognized. That's recognized versus designated or defined. That is, the books of the Bible did not become books of the Bible in the 3rd century or the 4th century because the church council said these are the books that are supposed to be in the Bible. So they weren't designated, they weren't defined as Scripture. They were, this is the word, recognized. As scriptures, so they were already scripture, but that was that authority was recognized by Christians and then formalized. A list of the books that are the authoritative books of the Bible was put together in part because you had heretics uh, writing their own books, recognizing other non-authoritative books, and so over against that, these uh, recognitions were <clears throat> were publicized. Now, centuries later, after the Protestant Reformation, which we really will get to at some point after laying all this groundwork, but centuries later, after the Reformation, the revolt within the Roman Catholic Church occurs, the Roman Catholic Church responded to that revolt a number of ways. One of those was to add seven books to the recognized uh, list. So instead of 66 books, in the Bible, the Roman Catholic Bible has 73. And it adds seven to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. So the 66 books are comprised of 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. But in the Roman Catholic Bible, instead of 39 in the Old Testament, you have 46. And then you have the 27 in in the New Testament. Now these seven additional books were books that were written in the 400 years after the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So, of course, because the Old Testament authoritative writings ended, 
And then Jesus is born 400 years later. That starts the New Testament. You have that 400 years in between. It doesn't mean nothing was being written. All it means is there wasn't any scripture being written. But there were still things being written. And historical uh, books being written like 1st and 2nd Maccabees. That's one of that was two of the seven additional books. And those books are really named, they're named after the Maccabees family. And the Maccabees family uh, led a revolt of Jews against the Romans in, in Jerusalem. And they were able actual, actually able to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem. So they were successful. So it's a very important time. It's very important historically. The books are actually helpful in that regard because of the history they give us. But they're not scripture. Now, how do I know they're not scripture? Because, fortunately for us, we have an authority, the authority, on this side of the Old Testament to make some comments about the Old Testament. So, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, then you have the end of that, and then 400 years, and then the birth of Jesus, which starts the New Testament, and then the life and ministry and teaching of, of Jesus. We have Jesus now, then, with all of these books available to us, including First and Second Maccabees, and Tobit, and Wisdom, and the, and the others. So what did Jesus have to say about, about any of this? I'm just grabbing my Bible here, Claire. I'm not, not coming to steal your coffee or anything. The poor girl comes in, sits down, and immediately I'm coming to order. <laughs> so Jesus actually made some comments about uh, the parameters of the Old Testament while he was here. In uh, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, I'll read it for you. You can jot, jot it down, though. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. And these are some of the final comments that Jesus makes before he ascends back to heaven. He's already died on the cross. He's raised from the dead. He's giving instructions to his first followers about the Great Commission. He says in verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. So in that, Jesus is giving the threefold categorization of the books, the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Law, the Prophets, and most often called the Writings. Those were the three categories of those 39 books that, that Jews, including Jesus, including the first apostles, that's how they categorized those, those books. Same 39 books that we have in those three categories. Law, prophets, and writings. Sir? What do the Jews say about those extra seven books? Yeah, they're not, they're not recognized. They're, no, no, this is, they have the same 39 books in the, Jew, in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible that, that we have. So Jesus, as a Jew, he has those. And again, the, the, the Apocrypha, that's what those seven books are called, those were available. But you don't have Jesus quoting those. He doesn't say of those books. He doesn't cite them. It is written like he does for the Old Testament, showing that these are the authoritative writings. And then he gives these three categories, the law, the prophets, and, and the writings. I meant to bring my Hebrew Bible in here. And I forgot. But I have a Hebrew Bible. And on the cover of it, there are three Hebrew words uh, from right to left. Because that's the way you read Hebrew. It's really weird. But written on the cover from right to left are these three Hebrew Hebrew words. Torah, Nabi'im, and Ketubim. Torah, many of you know that one. Uh, you know, All of us know a couple of Hebrew words, right? Shalom. Uh, Torah, law, but then uh, Nabi'im, prophets, and then Ketubim, writings. So right on the cover, it actually has these three categories that Jesus talks about 
in Luke 24 and verse 44. Now, Jesus said the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So why the Psalms instead of the writings? That category of the writings is the one that includes what we often call the, the wisdom books. It's Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. And the first and largest of those is Psalms. And so sometimes it would be referred to as Psalms, but it's that third, that third category. So Jesus is giving us the parameters of the Old Testament. It includes those 39 books. He actually gets a little more specific, actually, in another place. In Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is having another one of his bouts with the religious leaders, his detractors, and he is castigating them verbally, as he, as he often did. And so he says, you know, woe, verse 43, woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. And then he says in verse 51, or excuse me, verse 50, therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. Yikes. So you all held responsible for the killing of the prophets because they're hostile to him. They're going to kill him as the prophet. You're going to be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets since the beginning of the world. And then in verse 51, from the blood of Abel. All right, so where was the blood of Abel recorded? The murder of Abel. Very first book, Genesis. He says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, this Zechariah is kind of an obscure person, but it's in the Old Testament and his murder. And it's not the Zechariah whose name is one of the books of the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah. It's a different Zechariah. But his murder is recorded in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Now, how does that, how does that help us? Because... In the arrangement of the 39 books of the Old Testament, in your Bible, my Bible, Genesis starts it, but Malachi ends it, not Second Chronicles. So why is Jesus saying from Abel, Genesis, to some guy who was in Second Chronicles? Here's why. Because in that Jewish arrangement, even though they have the same 39 books, they're arranged differently. They start with Genesis, but it actually ends with Second Chronicles. The Bible that Jesus had and that the Jews still have starts with Genesis and ends with Second Chronicles. So here's Jesus saying, you're responsible for the blood of all the prophets in effect from the beginning to the, to the end. A to, Z. a to Z. So notice A to Z does not include the Apocrypha, even though he, he had it available. So how do we know that these seven books are not part of the authoritative writings because we have the authority, Jesus himself, after all of those were available, and he comments on the parameters of the books that are part of the Old Testament. Now, that's the Old Testament. But what about the, the New Testament? Because you don't have Jesus after the New Testament books are written commenting like he did about the Old Testament. He ascends back to the Father, so you don't have him to do that. What you do have is Jesus pre-authenticating the writings that the apostles would produce. That pre-authenticating came in some of the passages I gave you a few weeks ago in uh, John 14 and verse 26. John 14, 26. The night before Jesus dies, he says, I'm leaving, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, John 14, 26, going to guide you into all truth. And then in that same discourse, in chapter 16 of John, John 16 and verse 13, not only is the Holy Spirit going to guide you into all truth, but he's going to, quote, bring to your remembrance everything that I've said to you. So Jesus pre-authenticated what these guys were going to, to write. They're going to have the ability to have perfect recall to, to do this. So that's, that's one. And then beyond that, the... Uh, term for the authoritative writings 
of the Old Testament, and now you're going to add to that the New Testament, the term is scripture. Scripture. The Greek word is graphe. That's translated scripture. We get graffiti then from it. So script. The writings. And in the, fam- the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And actually, I will back up um, to verse... 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14. As for you, Paul says to Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Graphe, the Holy Scriptures. Timothy, you have been taught the Old Testament. That's all Timothy had at that point, growing up. But you, Timothy, have been taught the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Then here's this most famous statement. All Scripture, all graphe, all the writings are God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All right. So there you have that Greek word graphe referring to the Old Testament writings. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Because if you correlate the passage I just gave you, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, with 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, 16. I'll read it for you. And notice what it says. 2 Peter 3, 16. Again, start in verse 15. Bear in mind... 2 Peter 3.15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Let me stop there. This is Peter writing, but Peter is now talking about what Paul wrote. Peter has available to him stuff that Paul wrote. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He, Paul, writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His, Paul's letters, contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. As they do, now here's the important phrase, as they do the other scriptures as they do the other graphe. Do you see what's happening there? Peter is saying that the letters of Paul, the writings of Paul, are on the same level as graphe, the Old Testament scriptures. He's using this technical term, the writings, to refer to the letters of Paul. They have equal weight with the first part of your Bible. And notice Peter was able to identify that authority in the writings of Paul without a council convened, without the church conferring authority upon the writings. And so the church simply recognized the authority of the writings that already that it already had. It didn't give those writings authority. So the early church recognized the New Testament books that had the authority of the apostles. In fact, that was the first criteria that they used to determine books that would go into the Bible. Apostolicity. It's a fancy term. It just means it was either written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. And then they had others. One was universality, sometimes called Catholicity, but I didn't say that because you'll mix that up with Roman Catholic, and that's not what it means. Catholic means universal. So Roman Catholic Church means universal church headquartered in Rome. Roman universal church. But uh, universality, that is, that the entire church accepted these writings. 
as authoritative, universally. And then also uh, orthodoxy. That is what these books contained was consistent with what the other books contained. So if a book met all of those, apostolicity and universality and orthodoxy, those were recognized as the authoritative writings of the New Testament. All right, back to top of page 13 then. It was during this period, therefore, that the inspired writings were recognized. The nature of Christ and the Trinity, as well as the nature of sin and grace, were also explained. These seminal debates and controversies set precedent for centuries to follow. They also provided a heritage of Orthodox teaching that should not be lightly discarded. So during these first centuries of the church, Christians met together to discuss these important matters of the nature of Christ, the Trinity, sin, and and grace. They produced documents. They produced creeds. And what they produced should not be lightly dismissed. Quite the contrary. Uh, It should be highly regarded. They put a lot of time and effort into this. And uh, overall, they produced some really wonderful stuff. Um, The Nicene Creed. Creed means, is just Latin from credo, it just means belief. So uh, a creed is a statement of faith, a statement of belief. And the Nicene Creed, we're going to see in a little bit, uh, explained the scriptural teaching on the person of the person of Christ. You had the Athanasian Creed, named after a guy named Athanasius, but a strong statement on the deity of Christ, the fact that he is he is God. Uh, so you had a number of these kinds of statements that were put together that were extremely helpful in later history. So this lesson will look at two debates the early church had regarding Christology, that is who Christ is, and soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation. So first of all, the doctrine of Christ. Against the heretics, the false teachers, then... Those who believed scripture and right doctrine regarding Christ met together in order to fortify the church against those false teachings. And so that's what I want to talk about first. And you notice there I've got in quotes, unlike any other man and yet so much like me. So sometimes these uh, titles, like down toward the bottom, I'm depraved, you're depraved. Do you see that one? Number two. So instead of I'm okay, you're okay. So sometimes these are just me in a silly mood. And this first one is, unlike any other man and yet so much like me, that's actually a quote from a song. That's a Michael Card song about the person of Christ. And in it, he has this great line. It says, he was unlike any other man and yet so much like me. It's a great way to think about the person of Christ who was both God, therefore unlike any other man, and yet at the same time fully human, so much like so much like me. So what was uh, Christ like? And, and what was the battle and the controversy then that the church needed to address? Well, the antagonists in this first fight about the doctrine of Christ were Arius and Athanasius. You see those uh, listed there. Arius was a scholar. He was a popular preacher. And... Um, he attacked a sermon that had been preached by another Christian. And he attacked it because he believed that it failed to uphold a distinction uh, among the persons in uh, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what he was afraid of is that Christianity and its teaching on the Trinity would become polytheistic. Instead of monotheism, one God, which is what Christianity is. It's what Judaism, there is only one God. But instead of that, polytheism is many gods. And he was afraid that the doctrine of the Trinity would wind up being a polytheistic doctrine. And so he attacked this sermon and he began to speak against the idea of there being three persons who are equally God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. And then the other one was uh, Athanasius. Athanasius. And Athanasius 
had grown up in a wealthy home. He was able to get training at a theological school in Alexandria, Egypt. And he was only slightly over 40 years old when he got into this monumental debate with this guy, Arius. So they're having this debate. And one is taking the position that Christ is not fully God. The other one, Athanasius, is taking the position that Christ is absolutely fully God. So Arius' position was that Christ was created. He's not God. He had not existed for all time, for all eternity. But at a point before creation, sometime before creation, but at some point, God the Father created him. So he is not equal to the Father. He is subordinate to the Father because he's not the same as the Father in terms of his character qualities. That's what Arius taught. Athanasius, on the other hand, taught that he is fully God. And he is fully co-equal with, with God. Now, what happened out of this? What happened with this dispute? Well, the, the emperor, this is happening in the 4th century. This is happening in the 300s. The emperor is Constantine. Constantine is worried about it. He's worried about the fact that the church is becoming disunified. Now, what he's really worried about is the empire becoming disunified. But remember, he's pretty much in charge of both. And so he writes to the leaders in the church, including Arius, including Athanasius, and in effect says, can't you boys get this together? And time goes on, and they don't. So finally, in the year 325, Constantine says, you know what? You guys are all going to get in a room together. And between 200 and 300 Christian leaders show up for the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. Council of Nicaea. And they meet to debate this whole this whole issue. Arius makes his case. He actually is persuasive at the beginning of this council. But then Athanasius, again, just above 30 years old, talking to a few hundred of people mostly older than him, but expounding the scriptures on on Christ, is able to convince many of them. And in fact, uh, at that council, Arius ended up being condemned as a heretic. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is, that it was another about 60 years uh, before Athanasius' view, proper view, of who Christ was. Co-equal, co-substantial, with the Father, co-eternal, with the Father. It was about 60 years before that actually fully won the day. Uh, in fact, uh, Athanasius was imprisoned five times uh, in that in-between period for his own teaching. So it was still very volatile for a long time, but eventually uh, the church began, Christians as a whole began to recognize that the teaching of Athanasius was was correct. So here are the positions, middle of page 13. Arius taught that Christ was the first created being. Here's a quote from him. There was a time when he, Christ, was not. Now we would say, the Bible teaches, there's never been a time that he was not. He has always been. And if you wanted to make that clear, you would say it, if you wanted to make as clear as you could something that is otherwise mysterious to a finite human mind, the fact that there is one God in three persons, about the best you could do is what the Apostle John did. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, let me just stop there. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? So John starts it that way on purpose. In the beginning, he wants, as soon as you read those three words, he wants to remind you of the first three words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you've got someone saying Jesus was created, Christ was created, John wants to set that straight. In the beginning, when creation happened, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That's his way of saying, on the one hand, he is absolutely God. On the other hand, he is with God. So he's recognizing that there is still God the Father, and he's going to explain that in the rest of the Gospel of John. There's God the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who Jesus is going to send. So he's with God, but he's also God. This is John's way of starting to explain one God in three persons. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things, verse 2 of John chapter 1 and verse 2, and all things were created by him. So just in case you think that he was created, no, all things were created by him. And then he goes on to say, and apart from him was not anything made that has been made. It's kind of like tortured language, but he's just going out of his way to say he's God. He was there at creation. He's not created because he's the one who created everything and nothing has been made apart from him. And who is this one? In the beginning was the word. Well, he goes on then to identify who this is, the word, this one he's calling the word, who was with God and was God. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only come from God, he says. So who is this one who's the Word, who was with God and was God? The one who became flesh. Namely, Jesus Christ. And then John goes on in his gospel to explain who Jesus is. So Arius says there was a time when he was not. And John makes it very, very clear that there was never a time when he was not. He was not a created being. He created all things. Sir. I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, these guys are fighting about this 300 years after Christ. But couldn't they have went back to the creation of Genesis? And I can't. Yeah. I'm blank here, but where it says we were. Yeah. There was a pronoun there. Could. Yeah, there is. No, that's good. That's good. Let us make man in our image. Right, wouldn't they have seen that? That would be the first, cha- that would be the first chapter of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, so God said, let us make man in our image. So that's, an, that's probably an allusion to the fact of the, of the Trinity. Uh, so that they could do that. Now, you know, when you go in the Old Testament, you don't have a lot. You got that? You don't have a lot. You've got, uh, you've got, um, Isaiah 7, uh, 14 Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel well that Hebrew word Emmanuel when Jesus is born in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 23 Matthew 123 Matthew quotes that when Jesus is born Isaiah 7:14 this is the fulfillment a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted, Matthew interprets it for us, which interpreted means God with us. So there's there's another one for you. So yeah, they could have gone to the Old Testament. It's not a, How did they miss that? Not a bunch, but you know, you got you got some. Then you've got Isaiah 9 6. Isaiah 9 6. For unto us a uh, child is born, unto us a son is given, that's Handel's Messiah. Even if you don't know the passage, you can sing it with me. <laughs> And for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, it says. So you do have that. You have a handful of allusions to the one who's going to come as, as being God. But not a lot said about Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. You don't get that till you get to the New Testament. And it would be hard in the Old Testament to explain Father, Son, Holy Spirit prior to the Son actually coming. So that's my theory as to why you have a lot more in the New Testament because now that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has come, now the New Testament kicks into gear explaining the relationship between Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. But yeah, they could have they done that, Jim. That's good. 
So that's Arius. There was a time when he was not. Athanasius taught that Christ is truly God of same substance with the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are co-eternal, consubstantial, and co-equal. And remember I said that you know Athanasius didn't just win the day immediately at the Council of Nicaea. For several decades after that, he caught a lot of flack. Uh, kind of went back and forth. And at one point he was told, I have it quoted here, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, well, then I'm against the world. What a guy. You know, he's just 30-ish when he is at the Council of Nicaea. And then after that, he's taking taking a lot of guff. But he says, then I'm against the world because this is what the scriptures teach. So the decision in this was Arianism was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. But it lives on in the sect of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think I alluded to that uh, last week. And what do they do with John 1 that I just talked about? What do you do with John 1? Uh, you'll have to change it. That's what you'll have to do. <laughs> so if you can't deal with what's written, write something else. And that's what they did in 1952. 1952. Developed their own translation of the scriptures, the New World Translation of the Bible. And the New World Translation of the Bible says this in John 1.1. 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. So, insert A. A God. Small g. Not the God. Now, he's got the rest of the New Testament to deal with, where Jesus is referred to as God. You've got Jesus saying in John chapter 8 and verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they picked up stones to stone him because he made himself equal with God. They understood what he was saying when he said, I am. He's equating himself with the God of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3, who said to Moses, you go and tell Pharaoh who sent you, I am that I am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And they understood that to be blasphemy because he was equating himself with God. All right. So the person of Christ was was debated. But then, and important for the Reformation, is the bottom of page 13. I'm depraved, you're depraved. And that was an issue, the nature of man, the nature of sin, and the nature of, of grace. And the two combatants in this were, you see listed there, Pelagius and Augustine. Pelagius was a British monk, This is in the 300s again. Pelagius is a a British monk. He was born in 360, lived to 420, 360 to 420. He's a British monk. He came to Rome in about the year 400, and he formulated his idea of how people are saved, how they become Christians. But Augustine would, would have none of it. And so he and Augustine went at, at it. Now, who is, uh, who is Augustine? Well, Augustine uh, was born in the year 354. 354. And he died in the year 430. 354 to 430. He was born into the home of a Roman official. His mother is famous in church history. Her name is Monica. Because she prayed, she was a Christian, and she prayed for the salvation of her son regularly. Her son, Augustine, lived a wild life. Uh, He had a child out of wedlock. He lived with uh, the mother of the child without the benefit of matrimony for many years. He indulged his passions and in every way imaginable. Uh, and he was then obviously not, not a Christian. But then he had a, a conversion. He was finding no satisfaction in the pagan philosophies that he was dabbling in. And in the year 386, he was uh, converted. So he's 32 at this point. the age of 32, he's converted. And he was converted when he read Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. 
And in those two verses, it talks about all of these passions of the sinful nature and how those are not to be characteristic of those who belong to God. And the Holy Spirit used that to to convict him and to bring him to, to Christ. He immediately stopped living with his girlfriend and he was baptized. And just uh, shortly after he was baptized, his godly mother, Monica, passed away. But she was able to see the salvation of her son. And her son, who became an extremely, extremely important person for the rest of the history of the, of the church. So you've got Pelagius, you've got, uh, you've got Augustine. And what did, the, what did the two of them teach? Well, Pelagius taught that uh, people do not inherit their sin from Adam. Adam sinned, but Adam was on his own. And everybody else is on their own. So we've all got a free will, and we all either choose good or we choose evil. And there's no inherited sin from Adam. You either do the right stuff or you do you do the wrong stuff. He was provoked by a famous prayer of Augustine, in which Augustine asked in this prayer, quote, to God, grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire, God. Now, the first part of that, grant what thou commandest. Grant me the ability to do what you command me to do. So think about that prayer. Grant what thou dost command. Grant me, God, the ability to do the things that you've told me to do. And Pelagius hears that and goes, well, that's stupid. If he's telling you to do it, then obviously you've got the ability to do it. That's Pelagius' view. You've got a free will. God wouldn't tell you to do it if you didn't have the ability to do it. Now, let me just stop there and ask you. Does God ever tell you to do stuff you can't do? The answer to that should be yes. Think about the law. In the first part of your Bible, the law. Those are all commands, right? How many people did that? How many people kept the law? The answer to that would be zero. This is God telling you what to do, all the while knowing you can't do it. Now, why would God do such a thing? Why would God tell you to do things that he knows you can't do? I'm asking. Anybody got a thought, sir? So we can be conscious of our sin. Conscious of our sin, one. All right, so I'm a failure. Epic fail, that would be me, you, all right? And then what? Okay, so now I have my need for someone else. So he's showing you your failure so that you point to the one who's a success. So yeah, God does this actually quite a bit. Tell you to do stuff you actually can't do. Ministry. You know, Paul says, who is equal to these things? The answer is none of us are equal to these things. Who can do this? But God's the one who does it through us so that we depend on him. But Pelagius is not thinking biblically. He's thinking He's thinking logically. He's thinking naturally. And normally we don't tell people to do things if they can't do it, but God has good reasons for doing that. So, bottom of page 13, here are the physicians. Pelagianism teaches that man is not depraved and he can therefore choose moral good. Thus, God's grace is helpful but not necessary to salvation. And as a result of that, top of page 14, he teaches the freedom of the will. So you've got a free will, and you can do right or you can do wrong. Your will is free. So does the Bible teach that your will is free? Hmm. I mean, we're Americans. We get the vote. Don't tell me I don't have a free will. God's got to be an American too, doesn't he? So, you know, we think, yeah, we got, we got free will, and I can do right or I can do wrong. 
you know, the Bible just really says things about our will that just crush it. You know, things like Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Verse 12, there is no one righteous. Not even one. John chapter 6 and verse 44. John 6, 44. Now hear this. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father. Except the Father draw him. No one, it's not no one does. That would be true too. That no one does except it. But he's, no one can. No one has the ability. So it's not only total depravity that the Bible teaches. That is, that we are sinful in every part of our person. That's what total sinfulness, total depravity means. It doesn't mean you're totally sinful in that you commit every sin that could possibly be committed. None of us do that, thankfully. Because we still have the image of God, and we have the restraints of living in a world where God has instituted common grace restraints like government, like social mores, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit. So you've got these kinds of restraints. So no one does all the sins that could possibly be committed. We don't mean that when we say totally depraved. What we do mean is the total person is all tainted by sin. And the total person is mind and will and emotion. And the Bible teaches that our mind and our will, that is our choosing, and our emotion are all tainted by sin, all affected by sin, totally depraved. So you don't have the ability in yourself, because of your sin and your fallen will, to choose God. And you go, wait a minute, I know I chose God. Right, if you're a Christian, you did. But it's because he first chose you. It's because he did a work on your will to change it. So this is why Augustine, who understood depravity, and why did he understand depravity? Because he lived it. One, and then he read the Bible. And he knew he was a slave to his own passions. He wrote a book, did August, Augustine. I should say Augustine. Sorry, that's the way he pronounced it, Augustine. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. It's an autobiography of all of the sin he was involved in and how God graciously saved him out of that. But Pelagius says you got the freedom of the will. Now, on this freedom of the will thing, uh, you are only free to choose, and any of us is only free to choose within our nature. So if you have a sin nature, then that affects the range of choosing you can do. Someone with a sin nature, and only a sin nature, will never choose good. There is no, Remember that? There is no one? Remember how many are good? None? You said, I mean, don't people help old ladies across the street? Like if a Boy Scout does that, isn't that a good thing? Yeah, but no one ever does the right thing in their sin nature for also what? The right reason, which is the glory of God. No one ever does that. And if you were to choose Jesus as your Savior, that's the best, most righteous choice you could ever make. But you don't have the ability to do that until he graciously works upon your heart to change your, to change your will. So you're free to choose within your nature. That's always the case. God is free to choose only within his nature, too. Even God doesn't have the kind of free will Pelagius talks about. God is confined by his nature. But his nature is completely holy. So, as you've heard me say on Sunday mornings in Master Plan for Life, he therefore cannot lie because he has the internal constraint of his own, of his own nature. So that, in turn, leads this freedom of the will idea, then, leads to the possible loss of salvation. So you have lots of, in fact, most Christian, did you know this? Most Christian denominations teach that you can lose your salvation. Most teach that. And the reason they do is because it's grounded in this 
so-called absolute freedom of the will. You have a free will, you just don't have an absolute free will. You make free choices, but it's always within your nature. But if you have an absolute free will, then that means you choose Christ, and if I'm the one who chooses Christ out of my own will, then guess what that means? I can also do what? I can give it back. I have the will to choose it. I have the will to give it back. I have the will to give it up. When I was a kid, that's what I was taught. That's what I grew up with. Scared me to death. How could I ever know I was going to heaven? I couldn't. So possible loss of salvation. You can be saved and then you can be... Now, is this is this possible? Can you lose your salvation? Um, John chapter 5 and verse 24. John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has, notice the tense, present tense, has eternal life and shall not in the future come into condemnation but is in the present past from death to life. He who hears my word in the present and believes on him who sent me in the present has in the present something called eternal life. So how long is eternal? That would be forever. And if I have it in the present and it lasts forever, then it's impossible for it to be lost. But Pelagianism teaches possible loss of salvation, and denied the imputation of sin. That is, you don't inherit from Adam a sin nature. The Bible teaches that we do. Augustinianism teaches that man is totally depraved and needs, therefore, God's grace in order to be saved. And the consequent teachings that flow from that are the bondage of the will. Our will is in bondage then to sin. Even when we do good good things, it's not for the right reason. That's why Isaiah 64 and verse 6, Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, all of our righteous deeds are before God as what? Filthy rags. That's what it says. Even the good things. The bondage of the will, but the perseverance of the saints. Or you could call it eternal security. Why? Because if God is the one who starts this process... The Bible teaches God's the one who finishes this process. And so the saints will persevere. Even though they struggle with sin, they will persevere. And it teaches original sin. We did indeed receive our sin nature from from Adam. So what was the decision? Pelagianism was condemned at the Council of Orange in 529. All right, so... Augustinianism, you would think, would have won the day. Then Pelagianism was condemned. But Augustinianism didn't win the day, as we will see when we see what the Roman Catholic Church ended up teaching by the time of the Reformation. So this next one, number three here, is uh, tiptoe through the tulips. <laughs> this is me. I was, in a, I was just in a weird mood when I put this together. <laughs> so why the tulips thing? Well, here's why. Because... Flowing out of this whole idea of total depravity and then that leads to bondage of the will and all of that. Uh, John Calvin, any of you know John Calvin then, one of the reformers. John Calvin took all of that and systematized it like nobody. And John Calvin was just a brilliant dude. Uh, By the time he was 29, he wrote four volumes called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And it's a massive 29. I hate him. I mean, I'm 55. You know, how does that guy do this? And it's just terrific stuff. But uh, he systematized this idea that flowing from the bondage of the will, total depravity, all of that, then some other things flow. Now, he didn't develop what are commonly known now as the five points of Calvinism. Calvin didn't develop them. He didn't systematize those. It was actually people who, after Calvin, tried to refute what Calvin wrote. And they put together five points to refute Calvin. So the original five points were anti-Calvinist five points. 
And the acronym for those five points is TULIP. That's where the TULIP piece comes in. So what does TULIP stand for? The T is total depravity. We already talked about that. Now, flowing from that, because it's all based on that, total depravity, bondage of the will. Now, if somebody's going to be saved, then it's going to require God to do it because they're totally depraved. That leads you to the second thing, the you, which is unconditional election. That before you can choose God, he has to choose you. And he has to do that unconditionally. That is, he can't be looking for any you to meet any condition for him to choose you, because you can't, because you're totally depraved. So unconditional election. God sets his love upon his people just because he sets his love upon his people. Not because there's anything in them, no condition that they met. Unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. Limited atonement. So when Christ dies on the cross, uh, many say Calvin taught, although Calvin said some things that uh, don't appear to be what I'm going to say. But limited atonement is the idea when Christ died on the cross, he died only for those who were the elect. Now, this is the one of the five that I demur on. Um, because there are passages in the Bible that seem to indicate that when Christ died on the cross, he died for everybody. For example, 1 John 2 2. 1 John 2 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, says John, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's what it says. So, based on passages like that, I don't subscribe to limited atonement. Um, but that's actually not the most important. The most important is total depravity. Unconditional elect, and I stands for irresistible grace. That is, <clears throat> someone's got a dead will, inability to choose, and God then resurrects them spiritually, regenerates them, gives them spiritual life. And they're not able to resist it. Uh, if they were, they w- if you could resist it, then you would in your sin. God overcomes your sinfulness. Gives you a new will and a new willingness. And then the P is perseverance of the saints. What God began, God will, God will finish. That's what the whole tulip thing is. Alright. So who were the antagonists then? This is at the time of the Reformation. This is in the sixteenth century now, fifteen hundreds. You have Calvin and you have uh, Arminius. Jacob Arminius, 1560 to 1609, the year 1560 to 1609. And then you have John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. What were their positions? Arminius taught that men are indeed depraved, but that fairness requires that God give all men an opportunity for salvation. Thus, God, in his common grace, negates the full effects of sin such that man is able to choose good. That's a mouthful. So he's going, you know, that, that would not be fair for God to save some but not save, or at least give everybody a shot. And so he's going to have, but he does believe that people are depraved. So how's everybody going to get the shot if they're all depraved? Here's how. God is going to do something to everybody to get them back to neutrality. It's called, here's the term, Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Prevenient grace means grace prior to. Pre-grace. And what prevenient grace does is it takes the sin nature that you got from Adam that you were born with as a baby and it negates that so that you now have the free will that Adam had. You can now choose God. So... That's okay. A couple things. One, you've got to find that in the Bible. Good luck. John Calvin would never say good luck, but I'm just saying good luck. (laughs) 
So you've got to find that in the Bible. The other thing is, if the Bible's going to make such a big deal out of us being depraved, why does it make such a big deal about us being totally sinful if God's just going to negate the thing anyway? If God just goes, you know, everybody in an act of provenient grace gets back to ground zero, then why is total depravity, as given in the Bible, such an important topic? I'd submit to you it's an important topic because there is no such thing as provenient grace. And because total depravity is what prevents us from being able to come to God on our own. Calvin taught God is completely sovereign and therefore is not subject to our view of justice. So somebody says it's not fair. Calvin says God's not subject to our view of what's of what's fair. God alone determines who will receive his grace unto salvation. And so um, I say at the bottom looks like overtime. Who are the antagonists today? They would be the good guys versus the bad guys. That would be us versus them. You can decide which one is us and them. I think I've made it clear. And the positions are what I just laid out. And the final decision, that will be at the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? So we will start with Lesson 6, page 16, next week. Okay? See you then, if not before.